Well, today's a little bit of an object lesson, if you haven't quite figured that out yet, uh, of the three items that I have here on stage. And I'm going to tell you about them over our morning together in this last uh, message in our series, Jesus Who. Uh, to kind of set us up and prepare us for this, I need you to participate with me for a moment. We need some honesty here right now, and you're going to need to raise your hand. So let's start with this. I want you to raise your hand if you do not, if you, excuse me, I want you to raise your hand if you drink less than eight ounces of water a day. Raise your hand. All right, come on, put your hands up. All right, a bunch of teenagers, you know, you're drinking a lot of soda, and the other people just say, I'm not drinking. Okay, good. Thanks for the honesty. Thanks for violating everything that the medical profession says about drinking water and being healthy and all that kind of stuff. Now let's do this for the rest of us. If you drink at least 32 ounces of water a day, raise your hand. Okay, a, a bunch of you. Now leave your hand up. If you drink at least 64 ounces of water a day, leave your hand up. If you drink at least a gallon a day, 128 ounces, leave your hand up. Some of you are starting to slip down. Nobody else? Is that it? I think I see one, a couple in the back. If you drink a gallon and a half a day, nobody left. Am I the only one left with my hand standing? Hand standing, hand raised. Uh, that would be me. So uh, congratulations, Chris. You get the award, most water drank in a day, which presents a lot of problems for me, <laughs> right? You, you track I mean, it creates a lot of challenges, especially as one who has a lot of meetings during the day. My staff knows when Chris is doing the potty dance, okay? They just kind of know. I start walking around a little bit. Trevor's been incredibly gracious to me uh, more than anybody. He's like, will you just go? <laughs> and so I run out of the meeting, you know, and I come back and I go, all right, now I can concentrate a little more. So it is a little bit of a challenge drinking all that water every day, but it's important to drink water, right? You know that. You, you might even know that your body is made up of 60% water. You might also know that your blood is made up of 90% water. And according to the U.S. National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, in other words, it sounds like they know what they're talking about, right? They say that men must, uh, average male must drink 125 ounces, basically a gallon of water a day. And ladies, you're to drink about 91 ounces of water a day. Water is incredibly important to us. In fact, uh, there's many, many problems if you don't drink enough water. I'm not going to go into all of those, but one of the bigger dangers of not drinking enough water is that you could damage your kidneys. And if you know anything about your kidneys and how they're used to purify your body, you know they're incredibly important for us. You'll have all sorts of problems if you and I aren't drinking enough water. Water is incredibly important to us. Well, in the, old in the Bible days, the water was also incredibly important to the people of Israel. And in Israel, for them to get their water, they had to uh, get water from a couple different sources. One of the sources was what would be called cistern water. Cistern water was simply rainwater that had been trapped in a plastered pit or a cistern. Most homes and most buildings had one of these pits. Water would flow, you know, off of a roof, or they'd fl it'd flow down the city streets, and it'd flow into these cisterns, and so since it's coming off of roofs and down streets, uh, clean or dirty water, what would you say? Pretty dirty water, right? It's pretty dirty water. It wasn't a dependable source of water either, because it didn't always rain, and if the plaster had cracks, it'd seep through the cracks and, and disappear. But the cisterns were necessary. 
It was necessary because Israel is a dry country and they didn't know when it was going to rain next. So they had to capture as much water as possible. Sound a little bit like California, right? You, it, we, we need to capture now. We, we, we have dams and we try to capture as much as possible. Well, that's one type of water in Israel. There's another type of water in Israel and it was running water, especially spring water. Running water, and especially spring water, was fresh and clean. And most of the springs in Israel were dependable, and they provided water year-round. So this constant source of fresh water from springs, or even from running water, was referred to something, a term maybe you've heard before, living water. It was referred to as living water. And in Leviticus chapter 15, God told us something important about living water or running water. God told us that living water or running water was to be used in cleansing. For example, before you entered into the Jewish temple or entered into a synagogue, you had to go and use a mikvah and clean, uh, your ha- clean off and, and be purified, so to speak, before you could enter into the house of worship. John the Baptist, he would baptize. Anybody know where he did most of his, maybe all of his baptisms? Anybody know what river? Jordan River, right? And he would do it at the Jordan River because the Jordan River was moving water, symbolizing clean or uh, uh, cleansing. There was a time in John chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but Jesus talked to a Samaritan woman. She was at a well drawing water from the well. And in this passage, in a private conversation, he referred to himself as living water. In John chapter 4, verse 13, he said, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. He was talking about the well the woman was drawing from. But Jesus went on to her and say to her, But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, this verse as a standalone verse is quite interesting. But it's the connection between living water and one of the feasts that Israel would have during the year, the Feast of Sukkot. It was the connection between the two that gave Jesus' image of living water far more uh, significance for us. It, it gave us a clearer meaning of what Jesus was talk about, talking about. And what Jesus chose to do is not privately with a woman at a well, but Jesus chose this feast to present to himself to all the people that he was living water. So what I want to do this morning is I want to dive a little deeper into Jewish culture. And I want to see if, if it can cause the things we're going to talk about, you know, that we look at this morning, see if it can cause Jesus' words to come alive a little more for us that it can make Jesus' words more powerful for us and more helpful for us, that we might understand a little bit of what it was like when the people heard Jesus say what we're going to look at, when they heard it, if we can understand it in a similar fashion. So I guess I would say today really isn't a typical sermon. And I would encourage you to hang with me. Some of you are going to eat this up. Others, I want to encourage you to hang with us, and we're going to bring this to a place where I think it will really be beneficial for you. I would encourage you to take notes today. Today is one of those notes we're going to use a bunch of terms and it would be best if you could see them in front of you so you can kind of remember as we're re-saying the terms. All right, so let's dive in. Let's do it together. We're going to start in Leviticus 23. You don't have to turn there. But Leviticus 23 tells us that God commanded the people of Israel to celebrate seven feasts 
every single calendar year. How many feasts did he want them to celebrate? How many? Okay, good. Seven feasts. In the spring, three of the feasts were celebrated together. You had Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Now, real quickly, what were those feasts? The Passover uh, feast was remembering Israel's deliverance from Egypt when the death angel passed over the Israelite homes. You might remember that story in the Old Testament, or if you've never heard it, it's a great story to go read and catch up on. There's unleavened bread, and what was that story? That remembered God's gift of the promised land. Remember the Israelites that that they had to wander the desert for 40 years before going in the promised land, right? And God had to feed them. And how did God feed them? What did he provide for them? It starts with an M. What's the word? Manna, right? He provided a manna or unleavened bread. And so this unleavened bread feast remembered God's provision. And then the third one was the first fruits feast, which was them, which was the Jewish people celebrating the spring harvest where God would provide for them once again. Fifty days after Passover was the fourth feast called Shavuots, or Pentecost. It celebrated the end of the grain harvest and the anniversary of God giving Moses the Torah up on Mount Sinai. So how many feasts have we celebrated? How many? How many are left? Three are left. All right, let's talk about the last three. Those happened in the fall uh, or or in in this winter time. First, you had Rosh Hashanah. It was also called the Feast of Trumpets. Then they had Yom Kippur. I'm sure you've heard of that one. Yom Kippur is also referred to as the Day of Atonement. Incredibly important. It was the most holy day in all the year for the Jewish people. Why? Because Leviticus chapter 16, verse 30 tells us it was the day in which God cleansed the people. It was the day in which God forgave the people for their sins. Their sins were atoned for on Yom Kippur, holiest day of the year for the Jewish person. Immediately after those two feasts came the most joyous feast of all. This final and seventh feast was the most joyous. After all, think about it. They had just been, they, uh, the Yom, they had just, uh, you know, had the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. God forgave them of their sins. And now God says, in light of me forgiving you of your sins, let's party. Let's celebrate. I'm a good God, and I want you to worship me and to celebrate uh, uh, this uh, final feast together before me. The Bible tells us in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 40, about this feast. And it's the only feast that God commanded the people. Notice what the verse says. What's the first word? God wants us to what? He wants us to rejoice before the Lord. Rejoice before the Lord. This final feast was called the Feast of Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And let me tell you, the Israelites, they followed God's command, and they truly rejoiced. And this is what we're going to be talking about this morning, this Feast of Sukkot. And it's going to lead us to what Jesus does and what Jesus says, actually in the middle of this feast, or at the end of this feast. They knew how to celebrate. They knew how to party before the Lord. Leviticus chapter 30, verse 40 says, Rejoice before the Lord your God for how long? How many days? For how many days? For seven days, celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. So the Feast of Sukkot, for seven days they're going to celebrate. 
In this, God commanded them to build something. He commanded them to build temporary shelters that were made of olive, palm, and myrtle branches. You see that in Nehemiah chapter 8. These temporary shelters were called, here's our temporary shelter, was called Sukkot, or Sukkah for, for, in, in the plural form, or tabernacle, temporary dwelling. And theirs looked exactly like this tent from REI. So they built these sukkah, these tabernacles, uh, that they would live in and dwell in for the next seven days. As a family, they would eat and sleep, and they, you know, they were bigger and everything, but this is where they would live for seven days. And this was a feast that God required everybody in the land of Israel to come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. So you can picture, I want you to imagine with me, it, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, is filled with all thousands and thousands of people and thousands and thousands of sukkahs set up during this feast in, in Jerusalem. It was a time to celebrate and praise God for the past gifts of freedom, of providing the land for them, and providing a bountiful harvest that the people could live on once again. The people adopted another custom based on God's t- commands. They took branches, um, they took branches of Three trees, the olive tree, the palm tree, and the myrtle tree. Now, we just took the palm today, but they would take these and they would, they would string them together. They would put these branches together. They would hold a cluster of the branches called a lulav or luvalim in plur- for plural. And they would hold these in, in, in one hand. In the other hand, Leviticus 23 tells us they'd hold a fruit. They, they figured it was the citron fruit, which is kind of a citrus fruit. And they would hold these and they would go to the temple each of the seven days of this festival. So lulav in one hand, the citron in another hand, and they would go to the temple during the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. Religious Jews still do it today. Now, when they went up to the temple or when they went to basically have a church service, I want you to picture this. They have the lulav in one hand. They have the citrus in another, the the fruit in another hand. And as they are going up to the temple, and as they were in the temple, they would recite or chant the Hallel. What's the Hallel? The Hallel is, is Psalms chapter 113 through 118. So that's 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. So six chapters, uh, minimum, every Jew knew at minimum, they knew a lot more, but they knew a minimum of six chapters of their Bible because they knew that every single year for seven straight days, they are chanting or reciting the, lu, lu, the, the Hallel. So picture it with me. They're chanting, they're walking around the, te- the temple area, they're chanting the Hallel. They, they, ha- they have their, their branches and they're waving the branches. And then they have the citron in the other hand. And as they're chanting the Hallel, when they got to chapter one, Psalm 118, verse 25, the chant went from a chant to a shout. And the people in unison would shout out verse 25, which said, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Picture it. So they're, they're waving the lulavs. 
They have the citrus. They're chanting, you know, the, the, the Hallel. When they get to uh, uh, verse 25, they would then say, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success as they all turn their branches towards the altar. So they've been dancing around and celebrating and partying, partying and worshiping before the Lord. They get to this verse, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Are you picturing it a little bit? Is it working for you? You, you kind of have the, the image in your head a little bit? After the ceremony, after the church service, it went on for hours and hours. The singing, the dancing, dancing the chanting of the verses, the shouting out verse 25, waving the love. After that, after it was over for the day, the people returned to their sukkahs, to their tabernacles, where they would, you know, they'd rest, they'd eat, and then they'd sleep, and then they would repeat the whole thing again the next day. Then the next day, they'd repeat the whole thing again for seven days. Sukkah, Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, was incredibly important in the life of a Jewish person, still is today. But there were three historical events that made this, this specific feast even more incredible for the people and even more of a celebration for them. So the first was this. The first event, event that took place for them happened on Sukkot also. And that was the dedication of the Jewish people's first temple, what we might call Solomon's Temple. You can read about it this week in 2 Chronicles chapters 5, 6, and 7. Incredible story. And in chapter 6 of 2 Chronicles, you see in that chapter that, that Solomon dedicates this new temple to God. Remember, God had been in a tabernacle, right? He had been in a temporary shelter that, they, that the people, you know, wherever God was, wherever the Ark of the Covenant was in the land of Israel, God was in his temporary shelter, but they wanted him to be, you know, in a temple. So they built this temple for God, and now they've built it. Solomon has dedicated the temple. And then you get to chapter 7 of 2 Chronicles. And it says this, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. I would have loved to have been there, to have seen that. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 5 goes on and says, after that, then in response to what God did filling the temple, in response to God burning up the burnt offering with a fire from heaven, after that, the Bible tells us then that Solomon went and sacrificed 142,000 animals to God after that. An incredible time. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 10. After the celebration, this is the Sukkot, this week of celebrating and dedicating this temple to God, I want you to notice this with me. After the celebration, Solomon sent the people to their homes. And there's a key word throughout this feast of Sukkot, I want you to notice, sent the people to their homes. And what were the people? What does the word say? They were what? They were joyful and glad in heart for the good things the Lord had done for David and Solomon and for his people Israel. So Sukkot was celebrated at the dedication of the first temple. The second event that made Sukkot even more special for, for people like during, in Jesus' day was the celebration of Sukkot following the dedication of the second temple. It, maybe you know a little bit of Jewish history. You know that God told the Jewish people, you need to be faithful to me. 
You need to follow my commands. I give you, I'll bless you, I'll make you a prosperous people. But if you turn your back on me, if you follow detestable idols, and if you don't surrender to me, the word Ron mentioned earlier, if you don't trust me with your life and you follow false idols, then I'm going to bring in a foreign power and they're going to exile you from the nation of Israel, from the land of Israel. And that's what happened, right? Maybe you know the story. The Babylonians came in 586 B.C. They came in. They ransacked Jerusalem, conquered Jerusalem, conquered the land of Israel. And the people of Israel were sent off into exile. The temple was completely destroyed. But God said, I will not forget you. Seventy years later, I'll bring you back. And God fulfilled prophecy. Seventy years later, the people were allowed to come back to the land of Israel. The new, the, this new generation shows up. And as they're there, they realize there's no temple anymore. So they build a new temple. It's not nearly as glorious as Solomon's temple, but they build this new temple. And I want you to notice Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 17, what it tells us about their devotion of this second temple. It says this, The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters. They built sukkahs. Why? Because this is taking place during the feast of tabernacles are taking place during Sukkot. It built temporary shelters and lived in them. By the way, when they did this, how many days did they live in them? How many? Seven days. From the days of Joshua until that day, the Israelites, let's say this word together, the Israelites had not what? They had not celebrated it like this. And let's say the word and their what? And their joy was very great. So the people of Jesus' day, they remembered Sukkot and the dedication of the first temple. They remembered Sukkot and the dedication of the second temple as well, which contributed to the joy of the people of Jesus' day. But there was a third event that caused Sukkot to be even more special. But it's an event that's not actually mentioned in the Bible. Between the Old and New Testaments, the Jews were severely oppressed. There was a leader, his name was Antiochus, and he was the king of the Seleucid Empire. Or maybe a better uh, modern translation, he was the king of the Syrian Empire. So I want you to think of Syria today. Think of the madman Bashar al-Assad, right? You think of that madman today. So this is kind of a, not a literal descendant, but you know, he's Bashar al-Assad is kind of like a descendant of Antiochus, so to speak. Again, not physically, literally, but that's kind of the image, the type of place and what was happening. So Antiochus... He had a plan, and his plan was to Hellenize the Jewish people, which basically meant this, take away their Jewishness and Hellenize them, which meant make them like Greeks and make them adopt the Greek culture. Everybody else in the world was doing that, but these pesky Jews, they weren't. And so, you know, they were a bit much, and so they needed to get these Jewish people to start following what everybody else was following. So what did he do? He had to outlaw a whole bunch of Jewish laws. He outlawed the Sabbath. He outlawed circumcision. He outlawed the study and the reading of the Torah. He made it a crime to speak Hebrew. He made it a crime to even teach Hebrew. Then he ordered all the Jewish priests throughout the land of Israel to make sacrifices to Zeus and to Antiochus himself. Then Antiochus entered into the Jewish temple. And he went up to the altar of God and defiled the altar of God. How did he do it? He sacrificed pigs on the altar, which in, 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 the, in the world of Judaism is an unclean animal. 
He then took the, the guts, the entrails of these pigs that were sacrificed, and he dragged them around the entire temple. The blood of these animals defiling not just the altar, but the entire temple. It was an awful time for the Jewish people. He put statues of Zeus and himself into God's holy temple. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which meant God made manifest. He was saying, I'm God. The Jews, of course, wouldn't accept that, so they would quietly and secretly not call him Antiochus Epiphanes. They would call him Antiochus Epimenes, which meant the madman. Clearly, he was mad. A terrible time for the Jewish people. But God sent deliverance and, and rescue to the Jewish people. There was an old priest named Mattathias, and he stood up and refused to sacrifice to unclean animals or refused to sacrifice to Zeus or uh, to Antiochus himself. His bold stance, his courage stirred the people. His son, Judah the Maccabee, or as he was known as the hammer of Jerusalem, or of Judaism, the hammer of Judaism. I mean, come on, when you think of nicknames, isn't that awesome? I mean, if your nickname was the hammer, I mean, this is, I mean that's not just a WWF name, right? right? Then this is the hammer of Judaism. The hammer leads a group of freedom fighters against the stronger Syrian army. And these rebel forces miraculously defeat the army of Antiochus and they reclaim the city of Jerusalem. Judah orders that the temple would be cleansed and purified once again. The statues of Zeus and Antiochus were removed. In the Holy of Holies, you have the menorah or the eternal light, the light that the Jews were required to keep lit uh, all the time, constantly lit. But under Syrian rule, that menorah had, stopped, had ceased to be lit. They went into that place to see the menorah. They noticed it only had about a day's left of purified, cleansed oil to burn. What would they do? They had a little bit of a problem. They knew it would take about seven, eight days to, to go through the ritual process of cleansing and purifying new holy oil. So they prayed, and they lit the wick. And that oil, which was only supposed to last about a day, lasted eight days the entire time while they purified the new oil. It was a miracle from God. The celebration of this great deliverance of God Again, this was an awful time for the Jewish people. It became known as the Feast of Dedication, or as you and I know it, Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Now, Judah did something very interesting at this Feast of Dedication at Hanukkah. Judah, uh, the hammer, uh, Maccabee, he ordered Sukkot to be held during this official time. What's interesting is Sukkot had officially already passed, and it had passed, uh, uh, you know, a little while, or a couple months earlier, it had passed, but he brought it into this moment because the people needed to celebrate, and they needed to praise God. And so Sukkot celebration took place, which hadn't taken place for quite some time because, of course, Antiochus uh, made it illegal. And so the people celebrated with incredible joy that God had delivered them once again and it saved the people once again. As a result of this third event, Sukkot, the Feast of, of Tabernacles, and Hanukkah, their customs became intertwined. Now here's what I mean by that. It's very important as we get to Jesus' time, which we're almost there. 
These palm branches, the lulavs, as you think about the uh, Sukkot that used the lulavs, as you think about Hanukkah, which the lulavs, the, the, the palm branches were involved, the palm branch became a, a symbol of political freedom and not just religious freedom. Remember, during Sukkot, this represented God, you know, religious freedom. It represented God rescuing people from Egypt. It represented, you know, atonement where God forgave them of their sins and saved them from Egypt and saved them from themselves and how God saved them again by providing a harvest once again. That's what it meant originally. But now, after this third historical event, and where, where the hammer, Judah Maccabee, brought it all together, now this also represented not just, Lord, thank you for saving us in the past. Lord, save us in the future. Save us from our political enemies as well. When you get to Luke chapter 19, and Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem, what does anybody know what he rides in on? What does he ride in on? A donkey being humble rather than a big white horse. What did, they, what did they lay down in front of them? What were the people waving? They were waving the palms because in their mind, they're thinking Jesus. They're thinking Sukkot. They're thinking Jesus, save us from our current political enemy, the Romans. You tracking with me? You see how it all kind of ties together? Now, one more key part. We have the Sukkahs. We have the, the lulavs. There's one more part that was important in this celebration, and it involved living water. Sukkot took place at the end of the dry season. And, and so uh, rain needed to come soon. If rain, they, Jewish people knew no rain meant no life. So as part of the ceremony of Sukkot, the Feast of, of Tabernacles, the priests, uh, the, the, the high priest would, would lead a procession of priests. They would leave the temple. They would head out the water gate, and they would head out to the pool of Siloam. That pool of Siloam was fed by the spring, the Gahon Spring. For those of you who are considering going to Israel on the trip we're going to do next year, which I would encourage you to come talk to me about. I'll tell you all about it, get you all signed up on you know, the information on that. We walked through Hezekiah's tunnel. That tunnel is what we're talking about here, and it leads to the, the Gahon Spring. Uh, still there to this day. Fascinating. So they walk to the Pool of Siloam, which is fed by the spring, the Gahon Spring. They take the gold uh, jar. The priest dips it into the, what kind of water is that? It's from spring water. What kind of water is it? living water, right? Dips it into the living water and then heads back with this group of people, music playing, all of this going on, heads back through the water gate, heads up to the altar. I want you to picture this. He's walking up to the altar. The people are in the, are in the temple. They have their lulavs and they have their citron and they're shouting the hallel, right? And when they get to uh, uh, Psalm 118, verse 25, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success as they turn to the altar. Can you picture it? They're waving. It's a, this is going on. And then the priest walks up to the, to, the, to the altar, walks up to the top of the altar, takes the living water, pours it down two funnels that lead down the altar and for the drink offering. And as this happened, the people were silent in that moment. What was this all about during Sukkot? 
They were asking God to save them by providing them life-giving rain again. That they needed living water for their crops to grow. And they were going to the pool and grabbing living water and saying, God, we know you're the source. You need to provide us this living water. It was them acknowledging that God's the one who provides for them. Send us water so that we may live. Send us water so that we may live. Well, the celebration became more intense at the end of the week. They've done this now for six days. Same ceremony every day. You get to the seventh and final day. The temple courts are packed once again with the people. The people have their lulavs and they're waving those and they're shouting the Hallel. The priest once again goes to the Pool of Siloam, comes, comes back, goes to the altar. This time when he gets to the altar, they all walk around the altar seven times, uh, remembering back when the people, uh, uh, Joshua and the people walked around the walls of Jericho and the walls fell down. They were, tr- they were remembering and it was symbolic of saying, God, we trust you. We trust your power to do the miraculous and provide for us again. Then the priest would head back up a final time. He would head up uh, uh, that to the top of the altar. They're waving their, their lulavs or lulavims. He has the water. They get to the Hallel. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. It's deafening. The sound is deafening. This is a celebration. And at this crescendo of time, they're shouting this out. The priest raises up the water, the living water, and it becomes silent. And he pours out the water, down the funnels, through to the drink offering. After that happened, the people shouted out Psalm 118, verse 26, which is the next verse after Lord save us, Lord grant us success. The people shout out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Can you picture it? Can you picture the celebration? After that, the people became silent. Gradually, ex- uh, gradually in quietness and totally exhausted, by the way, they headed back to their tents, to their sukkahs, to their tabernacles, their temporary shelters. They disassembled them, and all the people went back home. The celebration had ended. And the people knew once again God had blessed them. The people know they had celebrated joyously in the presence of God and that God would provide them the rains and give them a bountiful harvest, that God would forgive them of their sins, and they trusted that God would one day save them politically. Isn't that incredible? Isn't it an incredible picture that they had? One quick side note of this part of this story, as you think about, is yes, there are times that are meant to be solemn before the Lord. To come together and be somber and, and, and holy and serious about our faith. No doubt about it. But I want you to hear something. The Jewish people also had Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and that was uh, their reminder that you are to come together corporately. That's what they did for seven days. And you are to celebrate before God and you are to shout and you are to praise and you are to wave and you are to lift up God. And I think that's a reminder to us today that when you and I come together corporately, that part of what we do is we celebrate before the Lord. And as we finish our service in a few moments, that's what we're going to do that we celebrate before the Lord in our corporate worship. But it's in the midst of all this, in the midst of the sukkahs, the temporary shelters, in the midst of the lulavs, 
in the midst of the living water ceremony that Jesus spoke. Let's see his words. John chapter 7. John chapter 7. It says this. On the last and greatest day of the festival. What festival? Sukkot, right? Festival of of tabernacles. In the midst of all of this, notice what it says. Jesus stood and said in what kind of voice? What kind of voice? Let's try that again. What kind of voice? A loud voice. He said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. In light of everything I just said, let me ask you, do you think that would have captured people's attention? Oh, you better believe it. When they heard that, that just stopped the people. Did Jesus say that when when it was silent as the priest got ready to pour? Did Jesus say it when the people were silent and getting ready to exit? The Bible doesn't tell us. But no matter what, those who heard, because Jesus shouted in a loud voice, He wasn't saying this privately to a woman at a well in John 4. He was saying this publicly to where all the people of Israel had gathered because this is a festival where everybody came. He wanted everybody to know that Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who provides living water. You physically hunger and thirst. You need water to survive. And your soul, if it goes without God, it gets thirsty. It can't survive. And Jesus is telling us our soul was made to live on God. Our soul was made to live on Jesus. And God is inviting every single one of us this morning. He's saying, come to me and drink. Drink from my greatness, my wisdom, my power. Drink from my goodness my justice, my holiness, drink from my love. Jesus says, I'm the only one who can satisfy. In fact, if you think about it, everything that Jesus came to do and teach is aimed at providing uh, food for your soul. Everything he came to do to give you that which will satisfy. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Jesus is that living water. And he invites all to come to him.